when guns are readily available generally to the public, they're also readily available for criminal use. A lot of times it wasn't really a crime. Citizens carrying a firearms does not improve public safety. It probably makes it worse. And it escalated into people pulling out their guns. For the size of the problem, this is the most underfunded area, I think, in public health. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, the podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're talking about gun violence in America. Today, we're going to look at defensive gun use. We'll hear from experts on how common it is. Then we'll take a look at whether having a gun is the best defense or just the most lethal. Hi, good morning, David. This is Celine Gounder calling. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm glad it's Gounder and not go under. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny that you say that. Uh, my father used to say... This is David Hemingway. I'm a professor of health policy at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I direct the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. David does a lot of research on gun violence and prevention from a public health perspective. Public health doesn't focus on individual cases. It's about looking at the health of an entire population. I would say it is try to create a world where it's easy to stay healthy and difficult to get sick or injured. One of David's projects is a survey of gun researchers. The idea is to get a sense of what the experts generally agree on. He's been doing it since May 2014. So every month I uh, have been surveying uh, gun researchers. To get on the survey, you had to be the first author of a peer-reviewed journal article uh, in the past, um, say, five years. Uh, and typically I ask one question, uh, make a statement and say, how, how strongly do you agree or disagree with this? And how how uh, good is the literature on this? How strong is the literature? And are you do you personally feel... Uh, that you know about this one particular issue, that you're an expert on this uh, particular issue. One of those questions is, how often are guns used in self-defense? What do we know about self-defense gun use? Um, not as much as we should. This number matters. It gives us an idea of how many people are using guns to protect their lives or property. If it's a big number, that means there may be good reason for more people to carry guns. Sarah, as I think I mentioned in um, my initial email to you, most of my questions are really going to be focused on um, self-defense gun use and the, I think it was 2015 paper you and David Hemingway wrote on the topic. Yeah, okay. Good, because I studied then. Good. (laughs) So uh, first, I think just to provide some context. This is Sarah Solnick. She's a professor at the University of Vermont. And like she just said, she co-authored a paper with David Hemingway on self-defense gun use. There is a lot of controversy about self-defense gun use because it is a pivotal um, reason for people to own guns. How common is it for people to actually use their guns in self-defense, which is what so many people say they're owning the guns for that purpose. Um, and, of course, you can read about anecdotes and you know, individual instances, but we want to get a really population-based measure. So Sarah and David looked to the biggest data source they could find, the National Crime Victimization Survey. 
survey that the um, Department of Justice does, um, and they want, I mean, anytime that you see news reports about um, the crime rate, it's from this study. This gets a little into the weeds, but it's important. The Bureau of Justice Statistics has been interviewing Americans about criminal victimization since the 1970s. Almost 225,000 people every year. Respondents get asked detailed questions about crime they may have experienced. If you hear a national crime stat on the news, it's likely coming from this survey. So Sarah and David went through the data between 2007 and 2011 and pulled out the relevant examples. Here's what they found. So we had 14,000 incidents. It was actually 14,145 incidents of crime across the years um, that we looked at. And in less than 1% did uh, the victim use a gun in self-defense. It was 0.9%. We know that there aren't that many self-defense gun uses. Uh, it seems like uh, in less than 1% of contact crimes in the United States, does a person use a gun in self-defense. So take that percentage, 0.9% of crimes, and scale it up to the nation. You're talking about roughly 100,000 instances of defensive gun use per year in a country of almost 330 million. Not all that common. But what if the estimate wasn't 100,000? What if it were 2.5 million? We got um, an estimate of about 2.5 million defensive gun uses per year, which was many times the number of um, crimes committed by offenders using guns for offensive purposes. This is Gary Kleck. I'm a retired professor of criminology and criminal justice at Florida State University. In 1993, Gary decided he would try to get a handle on how many defensive gun uses there were. Instead of using the National Crime Victimization Survey, Gary developed his own. It was a national telephone survey um, of a random representative sample of the U.S. adult population, age 18 and over. Gary did a national random telephone survey of 4,997 adults. He asked if they'd used a gun in self-defense in the last five years. If they said yes, the respondents were asked a bunch of follow-up questions about the event. And the results of that survey were an estimate that each year in the U.S., or at least in that period, uh, there were 2.5 million people who had used a gun for self-protection against crime. From that sample of about 5,000, Gary estimated there were as many as 2.5 million instances of people using a gun in self-defense. Gary compared that number with the number of recorded criminal gun uses. According to Gary's work, way more people were using a gun to stop a crime than criminals were using to commit a crime. His findings suggested guns might be making people safer. But that's a huge difference in the numbers. 100,000 versus 2.5 million? How did Gary get such a different number? It all comes down to how you ask the question and how you define defensive gun use. Gary's survey asked each and every respondent whether they'd used a gun in self-defense. The Crime Victimization Survey doesn't. And for Gary, this is a key distinction. Nobody in the NCVS has ever been specifically asked, did you use a gun for self-protection? The only way they can report it in that survey is if 
they're bold enough to kind of volunteer that highly controversial detail in response to that very general open-ended question, the non-specific question, did you do it to protect yourself? And there are now uh, 21 national surveys that indicate huge numbers of defensive gun uses, and exactly one that indicates very few, and that's the NCBS. Gary's critique boils down to, if you want to know about gun use, you should ask about it specifically. How a question gets asked matters. Since his survey was released in 1995, Gary has done a lot of research into how and why people would underreport or misreport being the victim of a crime or using a gun in self-defense. In 2018, Gary did another survey, this time over the internet. It looked at how people answer questions differently depending on how they're asked. He found that respondents were more than twice as likely to report a defensive gun use when they were asked about it specifically. That's compared to someone being asked generally about being the victim of a crime and then an open-ended question about what they did. So Gary doesn't like the National Crime Victimization Survey. He thinks the way it's carried out leads to underestimates of victimization and of defensive gun use. Gary points out there are other things to consider when looking at the Crime Victimization Survey. You have to, in effect, telling the government that, yeah, I possessed a gun, and yeah, I, I either pointed it at or attacked another human being with this deadly weapon. And you can imagine this is not, not something that a lot of people are anxiously to, to tell the, the federal government interview. Gun owners generally have lower levels of trust in the government than do others. Maybe, Gary says, they don't want the government knowing they have a gun. Or maybe they knew their attacker, perhaps intimately, and didn't think or want to report that. One point that Gary and his critics can agree on, someone may be breaking the law when they use a gun in the name of self-defense. But the person with a gun may not simply be breaking the law by carrying a gun where they shouldn't, or because they aren't licensed to carry, or because they're using someone else's gun. They may actually be the aggressor. It is clear that the survey he was looking at and and other surveys like it produce heavily biased results uh, that that tend to grossly inflate the true number of of what we would think of as defensive gun uses that are in any sense legitimate rather than being just outright crimes. This is Philip Cook. He's a professor at Duke University. He studies gun violence and gun violence prevention. He's also a critic of Gary Kleck's work, where Gary sees a weakness in the crime survey that it doesn't ask about gun use specifically. Philip sees an advantage. The other thing that the crime survey does is that before it asks people whether they used a gun in self-defense, it asks them whether they were the victim of a crime. Uh, And if they say no, they are never given a chance to say that they used a gun in self-defense. The survey Kleck used did not have that kind of screening. If there was no crime, why would you have used a gun to defend yourself? For example, people say, yes, I used a gun in self-defense. Well, what happened? The answer is, well, I heard a sound outside my bedroom door, so I took my gun and fired through it. Or 
you know, I was looking out my window and I saw a couple of kids standing near my car, so I took my gun, pointed it at them, and told them to go away. And those kinds of events then figure in very importantly to that two and a half million, which uh, are often actually people admitting to a crime they committed with their gun, if looked at correctly rather than illegitimate self-defense use. Sarah Solnick makes another point that we've looked at earlier this season. A threat is in the eye of the beholder, legitimate or not. Is it possible that in these private surveys, you know, as you were describing some of the differences in in methodology, that um, how people define self-defense may be also a big factor here, um, that they, you're including a lot more under quote-unquote self-defense in some of these private surveys? Yeah, I think it definitely leaves it up to the beliefs of the person that you're interviewing because you didn't establish that there was any crime. Um, So people can say that it was an incident of self-defense without anything ever happening, but they can say, wow, I really needed my gun on that day. Okay, so we've looked at how common defensive gun uses are. So when a gun is used, how effective is it at protecting us? Sarah Solnick and David Hemingway also looked at whether guns prevented injury or loss of property. Let's start with whether having a gun helped someone avoid injury. It didn't compared to other things. The percent of victims who were injured after they Uh, attacked or threatened the other person with a gun was 4.1%, and for all other things, it was 4.2%. So it was pretty even in terms of your probability of being injured afterwards. So having a gun only marginally improved your odds of avoiding injury. That's interesting, considering so many people say they want a gun for protection. I think that's what, um, what is really the essential, important finding of this study, which is that it's so uncommon and that a lot of other actions that you could take were equally effective. It's not like if you didn't have the gun, you would be helpless. It's not like if you didn't have the gun, you know, anybody could do anything they wanted to you. Um, People, you know, in those horrible moments, you know, they, they fight back in some way or they figure out the best way for them to, um, you know, survive or escape injury. And a lot of times those actions work as well as um, for that tiny percent of people that used a gun. Philip Cook. Based on that, uh, there are, of course, some people who say, yes, I defended myself with the gun and others that used a different weapon. Many more who uh, screamed or ran away or reasoned with the attacker. Um, And it's very hard to see any advantage for a gun from those data in in terms of the likelihood that the victim ends up being injured. And that that was true in Clex data. It's true when I looked at similar data. Uh, that's, That's what we have. Okay, so what about property crimes? We did find that it was it was effective with property crimes. 
we're not just looking at um, whether the gun use was effective, but how did it compare to all the other things that people did in these circumstances? So when I say that it was effective with the property crimes, we're comparing it to all those other kinds of um, actions that people took. Actions like using a knife or a baseball bat or something else, like screaming or running away. David and Sarah found that 39% of people who tried to protect themselves with a gun lost property during an attempted robbery or burglary. That compares to only 35% of people who lost property when they used a weapon other than a gun. So guns didn't prevent theft any better than did other weapons. We know that there are maybe uh, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of self-defense gun uses uh, in the United States, but uh, the evidence seems to indicate that there are so many other things you could do um, to protect yourselves equally well uh, without a gun and is with a gun. And the problem is that bringing a gun into your house or carrying a gun really increases your risk of lots of problems, such as suicide, homicide, and, and unintentional firearm injury, as well as getting your gun stolen and then being used by other people. That last line matters. Remember that David and Sarah are looking at this from a public health lens. Do the risks of having a gun in your home, suicide, homicide, gun-related accidents, outweigh the benefits of having it for your protection? And then there's another risk. Having a gun might actually attract crime. One area that I looked at with Jens Ludwig was on the question of residential burglary. Philip Cook again. And... We studied um, that topic simply because there had been a lot of discussion over the years that neighborhoods where a lot of the homeowners were armed uh, did not have to worry about burglary uh, because the, the burglars would be scared to break in there for fear of meeting the owner um, locked and loaded. Common sense, right? Don't risk a burglary when you could be looking down the barrel of a gun. But this is a case where common sense didn't play out in the numbers. Instead, what we found was that areas with higher rates of gun ownership actually had higher rates of burglary than, than areas with lower rates. It seemed pretty clear once you think about it, homes that have guns in them are attractive targets to burglars. Uh, because their guns are easy to steal, easy to carry out, and readily fenced and sold for high prices. So, in fact, the guns that were supposed to be protecting homes were actually having the reverse effect. Gun advocates often point to another idea that, again, sounds like common sense. More guns mean people behave better, because the alternative is... Well, getting shot. This is sometimes called the polite society argument. There the evidence seems to be very, 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 very strong. That was David Hemingway again. Studies have found that a gun does indeed change the way people behave, just not always in the best way. There actually is an incredible literature that indicates just showing people guns um, changes their uh Behavior changes their attitudes, makes them more aggressive. There might be, quote, good guys with guns out there. But gun owners are good guys with guns until 
Well, they're not. Bram Strong, as a man was sentenced for a deadly road rage incident in Chester County. Take the case of a young woman shot and killed in a road rage incident in Pennsylvania in 2018. Police say Bianca Roberson was driving southbound on Route 100 in West Goshen Township when Desper tried to merge. Then authorities say in a fit of rage, Desper shot Roberson in the head, then led police on a manhunt for several days. The what we found is that the people who are carrying guns in cars are just a completely wrong type of people. They are people who uh, have lots of other problems. Uh, they're more likely um, to do to drive badly, and they're more likely to get angry, and they're more likely to give other people the finger. They're more likely to uh, uh, illegally uh, follow too closely, uh, and so not surprisingly. We have a number of times that people have, you know, these road rage incidents and somebody brings out a gun. David's research found similar results when he looked at colleges with campus carry. The study asked about concealed carry alongside questions about college drinking. So what we found out is who, have, who has uh, guns on college campuses were, again, with the people you'd rather not have guns. These were people who were... Uh, and we had all the alcohol questions. They were more likely to do to abuse alcohol in every possible way you could imagine. They were more likely to drink and drive. They were more likely to need an alcohol uh, eye-opener in the morning. They were more likely to uh, get in fights because of alcohol and on and on and on. Uh, so it was not the type of people one would hope uh, would have had done to college. Another example that comes to mind is a shooting that happened in a Florida movie theater in 2014. The Pasco County Sheriff's Department has identified the alleged shooter at a Florida movie theater Monday as 71-year-old Curtis Reeves. A it started as a simple argument about texting during a movie. But then things got heated. One guy threw popcorn. The other guy, a retired police officer, shot him. The man later died. The woman has non-life-threatening injuries. The presence of a gun, whether in a car, a college classroom, or a movie theater, shows little direct benefit when it comes to personal protection. But without a doubt, it dramatically increases the chance that someone is going to get hurt or even die. What we know is that uh, where there are stronger gun laws and fewer guns, there's many fewer gun deaths. Uh, guns aren't protecting us, guns are putting us at risk. The most common reason for Americans to own guns is self-defense. But what we know about defensive gun use is based on self-report in government and private surveys, none of them perfect. Surveys will measure what they're designed to measure. Our data are limited by how people answer questions and what constitutes self-defense. It can all depend on where you are, in a duty-to-retreat state or a stand-your-ground state. And even then, it may all come down to what is self-defense in the eye of the beholder? It's one of the many reasons why there's so much disagreement on whether guns make us safer or not. In our next episode, we're going to ask, what is it about guns that's different? As a means, as a tool, or as an instrument? And why that difference matters? Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by The Blue Dot Sessions. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. 
If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.